This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, including a copy of The Myths of Creativity, check out audibletrial.com lead. This is Orly Lobel, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Orly Lobel. I'm a law professor at University of San Diego, and I am the author of Talent Wants to be Free, Why We Should Learn to Love Leaks, Raids, and Free Writing. And when you are not writing in private jets or being picked up from the airport via a limo, sorry, Orly and I follow each other on Facebook, and thus she's got a way cooler book tour than I do. You're really spreading this sort of counterintuitive message about how to win in this kind of war for talent. You know, we used to think it was about getting really talented people and then getting exclusive access to their brain and their thoughts. And, and now it turns out maybe the power dynamic has shifted a little bit and the, the talented people really don't want to be sort of constrained in that. But if we could, let's let's scale back and talk about this sort of this war for talent that even is starting all of this thing. Um, what's going on there? It's a term that's been used for a really long time, and you sort of opened the book with the discussion of that. Um, why is that so important? Talent wars are everywhere, in every industry, in every region. Uh, they're global. They're they're hot. So we we all know that we want the best people to work for us, and we're constantly in this state of recruiting and then retaining because others are trying to compete over the talent that we've already uh, hired. So it's, you know, we all understand that these days it's really not so much the um, number of cars or assembly line or, you know, factories that, that a company has, but really its ability to keep up, to be competitive, to be innovative. And what gives it, what gives the company its competitive edge is really the people who make it. I, I totally agree. And especially, you know, as we've shifted, especially to that knowledge economy, the the knowledge becomes more and more important. The knowledge, the network, the networks, the skills, the abilities, um, all of those things become more and more important. And what I think is interesting is that the logical reaction, if you're a company and you're wanting to sort of win this talent war, is yes, to get the best talent, but then also to find ways to make that talent sort of exclusive to you. We think that would be the best way to do it. But what what you found, what your research has found is that trying to do that, essentially um, having people sign non-disclosure agreements, sign intellectual property agreements, all of those sort of things, uh, all of those actually dampen talent's uh, desire to perform, their ability to perform, and in the long run can actually um, harm the company. I should say it from a law professor, this is a pretty interesting argument to make. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. So it is counterintuitive. I talk about the control mentality that we all have to a certain extent because, of course, uh, once we've recruited someone who we think is great and we've invested time and money and effort um, to make them even better, to build their human capital, we've exposed them to uh, all kinds of confidential information and uh, know-how within our firm, of course, we get very uh, anxious about any possible move. So that control mentality, it's there. And there's no denying that when your best athlete moves to a competitor, there's also a certain loss. But 
in the book, what I tried to uh, give us all is something that challenges a lot of our initial intuitions. So uh, first, how to do retainment, how to do recruitment in ways that are much more productive, and also to understand that sometimes losses actually come with a lot of benefits, that, that there's a, a repeat game that uh, make the kind of the tournament of people leaving you um, more advantageous, more beneficial than we kind of in the first reaction think of it as a win-lose situation. Yeah, I, I think it, it's quite interesting, the implications of, of all of this different research. And it, it actually, reading the book reminded me of this old anecdote that I heard one time, a conversation between a sort of unnamed CEO and an unnamed CFO. And essentially, the CFO is asking, you know, what happens if we invest all this money to develop our people and they leave? And the CEO's response is, well, what happens if we don't and they stay? Right. Right. Which I think I think is a very interesting way to look at it, and and you found even in the lab. I want to talk about some of the implications and and what companies can do with this information, but I kind of want to start in the lab. You actually f sort of found this in in individual behaviors around asking people to sign non disclosures, non competes. Those sort of privacy documents can actually dampen performance. Tell us a bit about your research. Yeah, so I do a lot of behavioral experimental research uh, along with collaborators from uh, business schools and social psychologists, and the interesting uh, findings that we have are that motivation can be very much um, pushed forward or, or uh, actually hindered by the kinds of arrangements that we initially create within a firm. So, um, you know, one of the things that we think about is what happens when people want to leave at the time when they're thinking about moving and how do we keep them. But it's also important to think about just that moment when you recruit someone and to be an insider and the kinds of uh, messages that you present to them about who owns the intellectual property that might be developed, who uh, owns ideas, future ideas that will be developed within the firm or uh, during their off hours. How, how do you construct all that relationship? And also what kinds of uh, career trajectories they have when, when they join you, what kind of promise or, or actually what kind of threats are you putting forward with, for example, requiring a non-compete. So we, we do all of that in a lab setting, which is um, very cool because we can take away a lot of noise that uh, exists in you know, real life job market settings. But we present to them this um, electronic job market where we say to half of our subjects, um, here are some tasks, but first sign a non-compete that later on in stage one, this is, you know, stage time zero, later on in a few weeks when you come back to this job market, you promise to not compete, not take the same kind of tasks from other future employers. And what's striking is that even that in that time zero, um, the, the, those half of the subjects that have signed that non-compete and the control condition, those subjects are free to, to do whatever they want in the, in the next few weeks. The, the people who are confined, who have signed non-competes, just simply fail more 
frequently to do really simple tasks. They're less motivated. Their performance is worse. They spend less time on task. They quit more often. And you see how, I think that there's something intuitive there, how once you kind of signal to an employee that when they join the firm, they're giving up so much of their human capital, they're, they're giving up a stake in what they are engaged in and, and asked to, to do, that they just get disengaged. They, they don't feel that, you know, it's, it's part of what they're, they're proud of and, and what they um, are, you know, building in, in their professional career, what they want to do. Yeah, I think all of us want to make a meaningful contribution to work, but most of us, myself included, also want to get credit for making that meaningful contribution to work. And even if that means credit in the form of, hey, you did a great job and now your options are more open to you if that means leaving the organization and building your own sort of career brand versus just building it inside the organization, that that can be uh, – I think really demotivating. It's it's one of those things that we should have. I think back, you know, motivationally, organizational, behaviorally, all the way back to like to Herzberg and the two factor theory and the idea that limiting people's options, limiting people's ability to take credit, limiting people's ability to move on in other organizations and and be the captain of their own career fate, as it were, is inherently demotivating. Just naturally, it, something that resonates with everybody, but it's counterintuitive when we're building these sort of HR policies and practices and 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 all of that sort of stuff. And yet what I love about the book is then you then go in and go, okay, so from outside the lab, here are those implications. So, so what can we do to sort of take advantage of this idea? How, how are some of the best companies restructuring themselves to, to make use of this interesting finding? Right. So I liked how you uh, phrased it, that even getting credit um, separate from all the financial arrangements that you, you, sh- you need to think about um, as a company but separate from that, there's lots of different um, benefits and goodies that people are looking for in the job market that are non-monetary. So uh, attribution, be, being able to build their resume, being able to understand that um, the social connections, the professional network, the kind of exposure to, to know-how and experience will become part of their portfolio. Um, you know, these days, uh, nobody's promising job security. So as a firm, you you hire and you uh, you don't want to promise that they'll you know whoever you hire will be there for for twenty years. People don't expect to stay and retire with a gold watch. Uh, you know after thirty years of being in one company, um, they're not promised to to have that kind of security. So the flip side is that you have to um, as a firm understand that. What they're looking for goes beyond just the monthly salary. Now, on the financial side, again, there's there's lots that can be done. So, in the book, I uh, discuss a lot of empirical studies that um, is quite interesting. There's there's uh, it's exciting times right now for innovation research, and a lot of uh, different great researchers are looking at this very question of how do you structure the relationship between individuals in the job market and the firm, the talent wars. And what uh, one, one interesting insight is that in California, where non-competes are not allowed, they've historically been banned, and uh, still today you can't ask someone to sign a non-compete such that if they, they leave, they can't you know go directly to a competitor. And that's very different from the rest of the country. So in California... 
we, we see this empirically, um, companies have been much better at using performance-based pay, um, stock options, all the different arrangements that really reward specific uh, excellence and uh, have kind of a, a trajectory of if you stay, you will benefit from this. So using all these carrots rather than these sticks of confinement. And so there's something that uh, inherently motivates employees when, when they see that, you know, if the company does well, their, their fate is very much tied to the company's fate. You know, I, I think back historically, and I, I sort of feel like, okay, beyond the weather, uh, I think that might be one of the reasons that California did so great in in the tech and in the startup community compared to a lot of other people that, you know, in the early days of, of the Silicon Valley sort of boom, right? You, you would think the resources wise, there are places in the Northeast that were way better resourced, but they had all of these non-competes, non-disclosure agreements, talent was really kept sort of chained to that that office and most of the companies that acted that way don't exist anymore. And yet when you have this other community that is really a community, even if you work for various companies, you, you're actually seeing this sort of exponential benefit of not having people sign those things. It's, you know, we talk about, I talk about often the difference between Route 128 in Boston and where all of, or outside of Boston, where all of the well-researched uh, companies were versus Silicon Valley. And that's really one of this, these sort of primary factors. It's a lesson we tend to forget a little too easily though. Absolutely. So it's uh, it's a virtuous circle, um, as as you um, describe, where it is the classic comparison between Silicon Valley and Route 128, the Boston area, um, where they start out uh, with um, both great human capital, great universities, Stanford and Berkeley on the one side, MIT and Harvard um, on the other coast. They they're they're great cities. And great companies um, in on both ends of the you know the coast, and and we have um, we 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 see in Boston really the stagnation. We we see companies getting bigger, vertically integrated, but also stagnating, and a lot of them disappearing. And Silicon Valley, we actually see this um, with the research now. We used to kind of think about it uh, intuitively, but we see when we look at um, collaboration networks, when you look at network science, you see this densification of everybody that collaborates with each other in in Silicon Valley, this richness of a professional network where basically at some critical point in the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, everybody starts knowing each other. And I think all the research from uh, from now a couple of decades that looks at innovation, there's kind of a consensus that what you need for an innovative region is this sense of knowing each other, knowledge flowing more easily, and uh, densification of the kind that are important for for both collaboration and competition. So this is actually the, the kind of cool thing that comes out of Silicon Valley. Yes, they're competitors, but they're very smart at doing all kinds of pro-competitive collaboration, where the, the, the industry basically moves much more rapidly when everybody kind of allows some losses over time. So, so it's a tournament. Yes, uh, sometimes whole teams will move from Google to Facebook, from Intel to Apple, but overall, 
the region is getting stronger vis-a-vis, you know, other regions that are, that don't have that kind of uh, hyper flow of, of people and, and knowledge. It's a, it's a counterintuitive strategy to be sure in the war for talent, but it turns out, at least to me, anecdotally for a long time, it looked like that's the winning strategy. And what I love is the book is packed with the empirical evidence of, no, this really is a winning strategy. And there's a lot of implications. You know, if you are that talent, you know you want to be free and make sure that you're still plugging into those networks. And if you're in charge of, of leading and managing that talent, you might be well-meaning with some of these um, legal documents and and. Uh, addendums to contracts and all that sort of stuff, but your talent wants to be free and and a rising tide will raise all boats and you can fight over who gets what share of the ocean uh, only afterwards. So if you want more of that information, it's a a really solid read. Uh, Talent wants to be free, why we should learn to love leaks, raids, and free riding. But Orly, I wondered if we could switch a bit from the book to you and ask you a couple questions. Uh, you know, if there's if there's one theme I see um, is an explanation behind your book, it's that talent loves to have other influences, be plugged into a network. It makes me wonder where your sort of influences are coming. Specifically, what, what are you reading right now? What ideas are fascinating you? I'm reading a book by John List and Uri Gnizzi. They're economists from University of Chicago and UCSD. Uh, that's called The Y-Axis. And um, their book is all about motivation and um, how do you um, drive, how do you trigger that, those internal drives um, in all kinds of settings. And, and this is part of my network. So I mentioned I, I do a lot of uh, collaborative work with behavioral economists. I'm writing a few articles right now. Um, in collaboration uh, with with people actually around the world, so some of them are European and Israeli, um, about behavioral economics and its implications, all the implications that come from behavioral economic studies to law and policy, and also just organizational behavior and and, and you know how firms do business. So I, I find all of that very interesting. Hmm, yeah, and and proof that that network uh, effect really exists, and and that you're at least following in line with the ideas in your own book. And is is that sort of what what's next for you? Or I'm, the book is by no means launched, but I'm also sort of curious to see what's on on that horizon for you. Or is that is that another book, or is that actually taking into trying to sort of shape how policy is written? What what's the future look like for you? <laughs> yeah, probably both. So. Uh... There, there will be another book. Um, Talent wants to be free. Yeah, it, it just came out um, a couple of months ago, and I've been having a lot of fun reaching a lot of different communities. So um, the different business communities and uh, researchers across campus, psychologists, economists, uh, and then policymakers, uh, for sure, at the state level and the federal level. Um, so um, I'm involved actually right now in. Uh, Patent. Uh, I'm 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 consulting on patent litigation in Silicon Valley and uh, network security. Lots of fascinating um, uh, questions that come up and pop up in all kinds of unexpected areas. So um, there there are a lot of different things in the um, in the future. <laughs> yeah. No. It it sounds like thank goodness you're free, right? Because there's an exciting future ahead. If if people want to find out more about you, more about the book, more about all of the things that are coming down the pipe for you, where can they find you? Uh, Lobel at sandiego.edu, L-O-B-E-L at sandiego.edu. I'm much better with email than I am with any other (laughs) um, 
voicemail and so on. So, but I'm I'm always happy to, um, you know, I I have a a website and uh, my faculty website, and I'm I'm very happy. What what is happening now with uh, um, the the op ed uh, in the New York Times yesterday, and and um, a lot of different, you know. um, like your podcast and so on, that it's just people call me all the time having this experience. I think everyone, all of us, have ha- has had at some point this experience of thinking about their own dream of becoming an entrepreneur. Um, on the other hand, their loyalties to their company, their industry, their profession, and how do you manage all that? And how do you stay passionate in, in your drive to create, to innovate, to invent? The book again, Talent Wants to be Free, Why We Should Learn to Love Leaks, Raids, and Free Riding. Um, I love all of those things. It's also a really cool cover, so at least go to Amazon and check out the cover. Quite quite well designed, especially. But Orly, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey everybody, it's David from the Leader Lab Podcast. I just want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast episode. And I want to remind you that you can get even more content from us if you connect with us online. We're at Twitter, twitter.com slash LDRLB, Facebook, facebook.com slash LDRLB. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher, or just subscribe to our email newsletter and we'll email you every single time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for being a part of the community. Look forward to giving you even more great content.